0: Hey Torsten, thanks for thanks for coming on on this uh COVID version of my show. <laughs> we will do it in person at some point again, but uh, thanks for making the time. I really Absolutely. appreciate it. Yeah. Happy thanks. to be here. Thanks, man. Um we know each other a little bit already, so this is always going to be easy to talk to someone like you. You've been building, you've been in tech for a long time and building a, you know, startup for a while. So I wanted to start maybe a little bit before that you studied biotechnology right is that, is that what you studied yeah talking about like right. so how was how did you go from that to starting us st- what you, what you noodle has been over the last decade T- tell me that tell me know, The story it
1: was, it was actually um you know at, quite a funny story how that ended up being biotech and how i then got out of it because I initially uh, signed up to do uh, no, sort of normal informatics, or the the, the the computer science engineering was was what I wanted to do uh, at DTU here in Denmark. And then I went to the in, the introductory trip at DTU, and I was like, I looked at everybody else, and I looked at the books and everything. And I was like, what is this that I said yes to? Uh, and uh, they had this new, really cool um, uh, major or, or or sort of. Uh, um, Field of study that you could choose. And, um, and it was called biotechnology in general, but it had this sort of subsection, it was called bioinformatics. So, this idea of doing, you know, I've, I've been building apps since I was young and self taught coder. This idea of applying code and computation to biology was just really cool, but it was not a long sort of thought out career dream. I literally like, realized on that trip, I was like, I should be doing what these guys over here are doing. And uh, I asked the, the DTU advisors if I could change sort of last minute, and I think at the time no one wanted to study engineering, so they were probably afraid that I would drop out somehow. And so they were like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah no, we'll figure it out. Don't worry about it." So that's how I ended up in biotechnology. It was fairly random, but um, but it's been really cool, uh, even though I don't work with it today.
0: Yeah, and I think what's what's interesting for me because now I'm sort of my, I've been building startups also for a little bit and. And I'm super interested in biotechnology now and I'm really sort of exploring sort of trying to read whatever little bit I can and I, and it's just it seems like there's sort of so much happening in that field now and I can imagine do you sort of do you follow along a little bit at all like uh, have you been sort of seeing because you also you went to UCL for your masters as well right and that was also related to biotech as well or
1: yeah it, it essentially uh, yes I have been following along, to answer your question, um, and, and I'm not in any way as up-to-date as I was at the time, but, uh, but it's definitely a field that has developed really rapidly. Um, I think UCL was, uh, was mostly because DTU is an engineering school, and, and I think once you get into biotechnology, there's this whole field about the medical uh, application of that, and that's where you very quickly get into uh, healthcare and, and medicine, and DTU just did not have that. So UCL uh, University College London uh, has a, a whole medical school and five different hospitals, and I was really kind of fascinated by the idea of diving into the the medical and healthcare use of of bi- biotechnology and bioinformatics. So that was really mostly why, um, and I really enjoyed my my time in London. I, I ended up spending a total years uh, in London working on various different things, um, but but yes, it is a very exciting field, and I think it's it's definitely. At the time I was at at the DTU, you know, it was a very new field. The idea of using uh, computation for biological data set. You know, we were, we had there was a number of genomes that were that were already sequenced. The Human Genome Project was sort of around the, the that time. Um, but what has happened since then is that there's so many other aspects of biology that has now been understood and shared and coded to a sufficient level where you can invite in a whole lot of other people that don't necessarily have the experience of of being in the lab um, and I think that's really cool it's a similar revolution we've seen in other fields uh, and in obviously in software in particular where we now have everybody in the entire world can can build you know cool apps and and new developments using a lot of tools that have been built and, and made available that's happening and has been happening and I think that's actually a really cool development
0: totally and I think also just i mean the, the latest application of this is the vaccine right that we've seen it's 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 very much I mean a lot of people uh, who are not in the know and I'm I'm 1% better than the people not in the know. I'm 1% in the know if less than that. And whatever I've read it it seems like one of the main reasons why this the, the speed and the efic- efficacy of the vaccine is so high is also because of sort of, you know, this this blending of technology and bio biology and sort of bling- bringing it forward almost sort of like ac that's mark and recent sort of software in the world kind of thing right like there's a lot of that that's happening these days um yeah i agree no but so i want to talk about again like a little bit in the a little bit in the past like how did how did someone who has a master's degree in 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 biotech start uh you noodle how did
1: that come about (laughs) (laughs) and what is you
0: noodle like i mean it's been a it's been uh, it's a decade plus now right how long have you been uh, it's been about 10 years um for yeah, what is you noodle and how did you start it like let's go back i know you probably answered this question a million times but if you wouldn't mind indulging me one more time
1: <laughs> no of course um yeah it's a it's a, a a software platform that is used by a lot of different types of organizations to source and select and evaluate startups and this is you know you see it a lot of venture capital of course that that the whole purpose of selecting startups is all about uh you know making investments But uNoodle is actually mostly used outside of venture capital. So government grants, uh, you know, foundations that want to incentivize entrepreneurs or create economic development, uh, you know, universities uh, trying to teach entrepreneurship. Uh, You know, there's a lot of programs that have different incentives and, and, and resources and opportunities for startups. And the process of selecting those startups is actually very complicated. I think you know we started in San Francisco uh, 10 years ago, myself and my co-founder, uh, Rebecca Wong, who is from Argentina. So none of us were local to San Francisco. And I think we were very fascinated by all of the opportunities that you had as entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley. So the, the idea of building a platform that essentially helped to level the playing field and allow other people around the world access to resources was something that was very close to, I think, both of our hearts. Um, now, that, of course, has Gone through various developments and ups and downs over time, but but that I think uh, idea was really uh, was really what we started, and and I think very much also the idea today with, with what's happening, even though it has a slightly different form today. Um, so it's been a, a really exciting journey. We can dive into it in a moment. But you also asked about how how did that actually like how did I go from biotech to there? So there's an important you know in between step here that probably helps explain that, which is that. Once I was done at UCL uh, in London, I was really sort of on the fence about whether I should do a PhD, which is kind of the normal thing to do if you're in that field, uh, or whether I should do something different. And this opportunity popped up uh, at home in Copenhagen to to essentially run and build out an organization to help entrepreneurs at universities uh, get new opportunities. And it was very much in its infancy. It had run for a few years, but in a sort of very small scale. Uh, And it it was called Venture Cup and still is called Venture Cup today. And I really honestly, you know, it kind of popped in the door and I I talked to them and I was like, yeah, they're never gonna pick me because I'm an engineer. Like why would they want somebody like me to to build this out? But it turned out that that was the the, sort of the opportunity with the organization was to get outside of the business school and into some of the, the other fields. And i think that was really fascinating it was uh it was it was so cool to be a part of that journey and in london at ucl i had been you know my, my project was to work on a, uh, a sort of a research project that was part of a spin out part of a company that the university of hospital was spinning out and i could see both the excitement with that but also the problems you know the challenges of of when academia meets the business world and and the and the sort of cultural and and other types of, of of issues. So I came directly from facing those challenges, and then the idea of going back to Denmark and actually working on a project that allowed people to overcome those challenges was just really fascinating to me. And I did that for about two and a half years uh, and sort of built it out to be a more of a national project. Um, really learned a lot and 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 definitely uh, you know those were some some really cool years uh, of that and and that. You know, as you can tell, now we're a little closer to both entrepreneurship and and to the startup world. And I met these people at a at a conference. Uh, you know, uh, I want to say maybe two thousand eight, um, yeah, something like that. And and they were building a company in San Francisco that was sort of about to take this on. And I was fascinated by it. I I, I remember sort of pinging them and 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 offering to help test their product i was really not looking for a job here but i I was just sort of you know interested and uh, and they ended up offering me uh, a job to essentially ask me if i wanted to come over and join the company in san francisco and they would you know fix me up with a visa and and you know get it all set up uh and for a young sort of green danish engineer that was a pretty cool opportunity uh and that company uh is um you know, I I was with it for about two years. Uh, Today, it's called Quid. It it sort of pivoted a little bit, but I learned a lot from being in a, what I would say, typical Silicon Valley startup backed by really cool investors, Peter Thiel from Facebook, Max Levchin from PayPal. I mean, really, really top, top top-notch people. I was employee number 10, uh, and, you know, as you can imagine, things were sort of fast-paced. People really pushed uh, to get get moved forward uh, and and it was really good, but also really bad in other ways. you know I learned a lot about how not to build a company and, and build a startup and I think one of the other early people in that company was my co-founder of Unoodle. noodle. so her and I, Rebecca and I decided, hey, why don't we take some of the things from here and and you know put it in a different context and build a, a different company um, and uh, and I think that's that's how you sort of see the path from Biotech venture Cup, quid in San Francisco, and then eventually to start you uh, noodle. Uh, not that it makes much sense, but
0: no, but it does. Do. And I, and I think what also it also answers kind of a question I've always had because you. You've been living in San Francisco, it sounds like since two thousand eight, in and out, right? So that's that's th- or, 2009, uh, or 10, 10, whenever. Yeah, nine, ten, yeah. yeah, ten plus years. Let's just say that, right? And and sort of you've seen it go from. Um, kind of being the only game in town right and and uh, in terms of sort of the mecca for technology and it still is right to, to a large extent it seems like um and and i, I want to talk about two things one is is you said you also learned about how not some things that you know that company didn't do well and not to put them under the bus but uh, specifically because i'm sure you know uh, they're going to be fine <laughs> uh, but but what what was it that you saw that that you sort of you and your uh, co-founder would you know sort of wanted to change or try and do differently what was that
1: yeah i think um you know this is this is a pattern that i've seen a lot in the in both sort of earlier and later startups in silicon valley which is that you get really cool investors in and and they're they're pushy, you know, they, they want to move this forward. That's what Silicon Valley does. It's about you know moving fast and failing fast. If it doesn't work, move on to the next thing. So it's a really sort of pushy culture, which leads to rapid development of really cool companies, but it also leads to a number of of, of not so uh, I think pleasant consequences. So when you take founders that really don't have much experience building companies and you, you give them a lot of money and you push them a lot, you are essentially creating the conditions of not very uh, you know, friendly work environments. So there's a lot of pressure on founders. And being a founder myself, like I see it. You're, you're, there's pressure on you and, and you know, you're in uncharted territory. You can't go to business school and learn how to be a founder. It's not how it works. So you are learning on the job and that just means that you're gonna make missteps. You're, you're going to not be doing things as, as, as well as you perhaps you know, would like to do. And, and so I think in the early phases of that company, which today looks completely different, you know, it's, it's a totally pivoted probably multiple times. Uh, but at the time, you know, I would say the work environment was not great and a number of people at that time uh, left. And, and I think it's not a, an abnormal small story. Like it, it's, it's, it's unfortunately very common. Um, and we don't talk a lot about it because Silicon Valley is so focused on success stories. So no one really cares about all the stuff that doesn't work out the way that it should. It's just sort of okay. On to the next thing. Um, and uh, and I, honestly, I'm not complaining about it. I, I got a really really valuable lesson out of it. I learned so much. I mean, they opened the door to allow me to come to the valley. They gave me a start. Uh, you know, I I'm definitely very grateful for that. Uh, but of course, the least we should do as humans is to learn when we see mis- mistakes. And I think both for Rebecca and I, that has been really useful in building the company afterwards. That we could observe. Uh, uh you know and you asked me what it was well it's particularly the interaction between management and and the rest of the company uh and, you know that's really it it's ma- it's it's you know bad leadership uh and bad culture um is probably the best way to describe it
0: thanks for that i think it's super important that people realize that right and i think th- sort of it is there's no one way to build a great company and i think what what uh, unfortunately or fortunately, you know, there's a very, there's a very clear path, you know, a venture capital, you know, build a scalable product, pressure, 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 right? Mistakes will be made, but who cares? Keep learning, keep moving, right? And, and that's great. Um, and clearly that's all we hear about, right? Most of the time in the media and sort of all the, the startup uh, tech media in the world, and now tech has become so much bigger than sort of the niche thing it used to be, um, right? That, that, that it's there's also big money in talking about tech all the time. So, I think there is sort of this uh, um, you know tsunami of of uh, numbers. Uh, you know, fifty million Series A, thirty million Series B, whatever it is here, or there. You know, Series nine, whatever. All of these words that you know, teenagers and kids who are who are engineers or even business-minded people are like, oh, okay, I should be building a startup. And you know, and I think. And and not to say that you shouldn't or you should that's the point. But I think what was surprising with with YouNoodle and I I, I actually I have been used I I was uh, using YouNoodle uh, way before we met because I I had I had uh, applied for startup Chile. Uh, and got accepted. I think it was two thousand thirteen or fourteen, something like that.
1: Congratulations! Yeah, thank great you. Program. We didn't
0: end up going for some personal reasons, but it was a great, it was a great uh, experience. And I was like, "What is this?" You Noodle, <laughs> and I remember, and I also remember when La Web was going on back in the day. I, you Noodle also was was I think powering part of the Web application or something. Yeah, yeah, I remember back in the day when uh, yeah, that was kind of a big deal and i just kept seeing you noodle i'm like what is this company with the cool name like who? and that's funny that i kind of you know know you which is really cool uh, i why did you guys try to focus on government grants how did that come about because i think that's super unique right you're in the valley you're in you're in san francisco it's sort of you know every 5 meters there's a 100 million billion dollar venture capital firm like why not only focus on that which you know and why, why focus on something else?
1: Yeah, I think, I, I think there are a couple of reasons, right. First of all, as I said, Rebecca and I were very sort of from a very international multicultural background, and I think that that just means that naturally you gravitate to other opportunities uh, and not just Silicon Valley. So I think what happened uh, was Star Chile was actually the first sort of government project that we did. And, and for those of you that don't know it, it's a sort of a, a government accelerator where the the government of Chile gives you money and, and sorts out a visa for you to come and build your company in Chile. That's essentially it. And it's still running, right? It's still it's going. It's still running, yeah. They've had you know a, some number of thousands of startups through, it's really a remarkable, uh, it has completely uh, changed the Chilean startup ecosystem over those maybe almost 10 years. Uh, it's really a fascinating study to dive into the effect uh, and the corollary effects of that program. However, at the time it was, Brand new, like no other countries were really doing something, you know, that that ambitious, uh, and um, and so what happened was that the one of the uh, the sort of founding team members, let's call it that, uh, was at Stanford, uh, also doing his PhD while Rebecca was there, my co-founder. So they had met and they had, you know, talked about, you know, she was talking about this new company, U Noodle, that we had founded. And he was explaining that in Chile they are doing this new project, and I think naturally they 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 realized, well, why don't we somehow you know join forces here? Is there a way we could work together in this? So we started a pilot uh, with them that eventually you know got a few you know cool startups uh, to Chile, and then they on the sort of political side really scaled it up, and um, and you know we were first in line uh, you know to to continue that that collaboration. And I- uh, it, it was not a strategy that we had to say, "Hey, let's try to do like government projects." Who, who has that strategy, right? Uh, but um, you get into it, and and I think, again, had we been, you know, more traditional Silicon Valley venture focused, we would probably have seen it as a distraction. It's like, why, well, why care about this Latin American country? You know, government. You know, go- government always takes a while. It's like it's a pain to deal with bureaucracy. So, so I think. It really was because we were really excited about these opportunities of, of how to you know, level the playing field and get people access to, to opportunities. And here was like and a real government of a real country was actually doing something very ambitious that later ended up you know, paving the road for probably 50 other go- government programs of that type. Uh, so, so really, like, uh, that's obviously not because of us, but we were lucky to get in on essentially what became the Pioneer of government startup programs.
0: Yeah, and what's what was also really interesting for, for me is that, you know, from sort of being, I guess, uh, from a customer, external not even a customer, I guess, you know, applicant perspective, right? It just it felt like it was not it was much more than an application form. You know, you sort of felt like you were kind of Oh, I was like, oh, Unoodle is this app making company that's making these cool apps for these uh, for this government agency, and then Le Web Show, and I was like, okay, who who are these people? <laughs> and like, you know, because you because you were popping up in all these international tech settings, and for me being uh, at the time living in Amsterdam, uh, you know, it was kind of it was kind of cool to see that. Oh, okay, there's a company that's sort of taking care of uh, bringing the quality, so to speak, uh, you know, and to a certain extent to... The rest of the world, in a way, right? And so, talking about the early days of Noodle, you said uh, you were not—you uh, just mentioned that you were not sort of a typical venture-backed uh, company. Have you guys been bootstrapped the entire time, or did you raise some money? Talking about sort of the journey in the early yeah, days no, and where uh, you are, yeah, where
1: you are now. Uh, of course, we. So we did. That's one of the luxuries of being in in San Francisco is that you have access to both money and and really experienced uh, investors, uh, because obviously in most. You know startup hotspots today, you have access to money. If you have something good, there will be people willing to 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 fund you. Um, but what you have in San Francisco is the combination of money and uh, company building and scaling experience. you know So yes, we took uh, about you know three, three and a half million uh, dollars of funding into the company over over a couple of rounds. Uh, and, and you know, one of our investors, he, he had built a, a semiconductor company, uh, from scratch to IPO. You wow. know, he was the founding CTO over 20 years of a company that went all the way to to NASDAQ, right? And And, you know, he was kind of semi-retired by the time and he just really enjoyed sitting down with us and talking about how to build this company. Just imagine that luxury of being in a city where, you know, we were excited to have him on board and have him invest, but he was excited because he really felt like, wow, this is like all the new cool entrepreneurs that are coming up. I want to be a part of this, right? That, that is very much the, the, the sort of magic of Silicon Valley that I think we, we benefit a lot from and, and really wanted to broaden. Uh, so, so, yes, we did take uh, some, some money in. But of course, after 10 years in San Francisco, uh, you know a couple of million is not going get to you, get you very far. So, so the vast majority of the, of the growth of the company has been uh, revenue growth. So essentially... Which makes know, sense. <laughs> Which, which yeah. makes sense. Yeah. I mean,
0: you build a product, sell it and get customers and keep doing that and grow, right? I think that makes sense. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And it, it's, uh, you know, revenue growth is both good and bad. Uh, you know, it, it keeps you very honest. You know, you don't build anything that there isn't a market for and you adjust as you go. Uh, but obviously it also has the downsides of, uh, of less long-term strategic uh, focus. Right. You have to move with the tidings, you know, something something, you know, if you have a bad year or a good year, you can't just rely on, you know, 50 million of venture dollars in the bank. And I think that is the downside of it. And and the reason why some revenue focused companies never become this unicorns and blockbusters that they want to be because they're constantly pulled in different directions. So I, I'm a big fan of revenue growth, but I definitely also fully understand the downside.
0: Yeah. And so you started with startup chile and then which like over the last 10 years i'm sure there's many companies many governments you've been working with but sort of are do there are there sort of some moments in the company's history the last 10 years that stand out where you were like you level changed to partner with some interesting people talk about that and then where is where is uh, you noodle now and or after after a decade plus
1: yeah, yeah, that's that's a good question. You know, there are definitely some defining moments, uh, both good and bad. Uh, I think, yes, starting with Startup Chile was important. Uh, also, I think our first big project was actually with the Intel Foundation. So the sort of uh, 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 philanthropic arm of Intel Corporation. Um, and uh, and I think when you have a brand like Intel to work with you very early, that opens the door for a lot of other things. And And, you know, definitely that's not easy as a startup to get in with, with the really big brands and names because you're so risky at that time right you don't know if this thing is even going to survive another six months so i think in intel um, startup chile was important uh, and i think later uh, working with you know when when amazon came at some point and said hey we actually were running a global startup challenge for amazon web services can you guys help us with that that's a little bit more of like wow we're actually like amazon cares about us it's like it's a it's a, a defining moment we've done a lot with amazon since then um and and a number of other both you know uh, corporate uh, uh brands but also of course a lot with other uh, other um, governments um I, I don't know i think it's been kind of a that that piece has been very gradual but there's also been some not so good uh you know milestones right we we were. Uh, a few years into starting the company, I want to say maybe 2011, 2012, maybe we were uh, very sidetracked by what was essentially consulting uh, projects. You know, we were in the name of revenue growth. We had, you know, Rebecca is an amazing salesperson, an amazing networker, some something that I deeply admire her for, um, and were and she was able to get us some some projects that were just really cool. You know, they were top top notch with really cool people and, and you know they, they required a lot of work but they also paid well. So, so by doing those projects we essentially gravitated further and further away from being a technology company and a data company and into uh, essentially being doing running from project to project. and our, our revenue numbers looked great in those in those you know months and years, but it was a complete distraction from the actual building of a platform and a global network of startups the way that we have it today. And I think that nearly killed us because when you sort of decide to say, okay, at some point we, Rebecca and I looked at each other and was like, yeah, we, we are, this is not what we set out to do and what we fundraise for. We, we got a sort of course correct. And when you start that and you start saying no to those consulting projects, you know, you start having not so good numbers. Which is terrible when you think about either fundraising or hiring the right people or building stuff out. You know, you're not showing that growth path. So so that's why, you know, it's not for fun that investors always tell their, their founders, focus, focus, focus. You know, don't get distracted by all sorts of other stuff. Uh, and I think we absolutely make, made that mistake uh, and um, and had some really fun years, <laughs> but it, it just did not build the company uh, and nearly killed us in the in the process afterwards.
0: So how did you how did you course correct uh, and 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 what I guess it was twenty twelve thirteen when you sort of you said a couple of years right uh, so when when did the course correcting start and and what what is the company what has the company been since then and what is it today
1: Yeah, so uh, I I think we never we were always. Building a technology platform from day one to run the selection processes. The first ever process that ran was actually Rebecca's own Stanford University that ran their sort of student uh, um, pitch competition on the platform. and And so that it's not that we stopped doing that. It just means that we got complacent and slower in developing the product. And since we were very much first movers in that space, there was no other platforms to do this. Uh, other platforms popped up, you know, competition happened. That's what, what, what happens when you're in a cool space. So we essentially got pushed behind uh, what I would say was global best practice in terms of what happened in the space. So it was not that we stopped doing it, and it was not that we didn't have a SaaS platform. We had subscribers and we had stuff happening there. It was just not our primary concern in those very early years. So we really didn't have to do anything other than stop doing the consulting projects and start investing our time into the SaaS platform but as anyone who's built a SaaS company knows there's a huge lag between the time you invest in the platform and that platform ever paying the bills for everybody right that's kind of the nature of SaaS.
0: I think it's so important this point I think you've stressed it a couple of times and I really want to double click on it because I think you know building a tech company especially a product you know consumer SaaS SaaS Especially consumer tech, right? There is, there is a obscene amount of focus that's needed to build product, and then you have to keep innovating, you have to keep improving, you have to keep going, running on the treadmill. You can't stop. uh, uh I heard uh, Moxie, the guy from uh, Signal, on another podcast the other day talk about kind of you know Signal got this crazy growth, and you know because of all some changes that WhatsApp made and 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 you know other messaging platforms and he's like running a technology company is like you you cannot stop swimming you have to keep you have to keep improving you have to keep trying new things and especially something like what signal is doing which is very security heavy you know there's a lot of uh, a lot of attacks coming all the time but the point is running a SaaS company especially as you said takes a long time for you know your fruits to bear sort of right and um so you kind of refocused on building the SaaS platform and what has happened since then. And where are you today uh, in terms of, you know,
1: yeah. Uh, so we refocused on, on building SaaS platform. And I think uh, over, over the next sequence of years tried different market segments and some worked better than others and gradually slowly. And in my opinion, too slowly, but eventually got focused on, where they are today is a really good product market fit, which is this like very, very clear focus on what I would call both sourcing and selection of uh, entrepreneurs and startups. And, um, and again, this is, you know, no startups are paying us anything here. It's purely paid by the big organizations like the World Bank does some, uh, you know, economic development project with startups. Uh, and, and we are the platform that helps them uh, source and select those startups, right? So uh, so that's very much the focus and it, and it's uh, you know, to my knowledge, the leading platform for that purpose. And there's another maybe ten platforms out there that does something similar. Um, but it's a space we now know really well and and something that we are uh, you know, I think comfortable with and and trying our best to to build out and push forward. And um, so that's that's the company today, and I think maybe I would also add that. We, in some ways, maybe we have a tiny piece of, 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 the, of the sort of um, impact uh, here, but we really just hit a wave that moved entrepreneurship and, and high-growth startups out of Silicon Valley. You know, over the 10, past 10 years, if you were 10 years ago, let's say a European, Amsterdam-based founder, and you wanted to, to grow and become a global technology company, there was only one answer. Which was how fast can you get yourself to San Francisco? That was what everybody told each other, even in Amsterdam. One person would tell the other person go to San Francisco. That- I was
0: there, and I was one of those yes. idiots who didn't make it out. And I sort of still I'm like, what would my life have been? But hey, anyway, that's a different conversation.
1: I, again, I, I'm not sure I would I would I would call 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 it call you that uh, you know because the world has changed very very. But I'm just I'm sharing with you to remind you of how black and white the world was at that time. There was only one path. It was Silicon Valley. And what has happened now is that the capital side, not only do we have in Europe and in many other places, local venture capitalists that are fairly competent uh, and, and are, are you know, getting better at, at both funding and supporting startups, but we also see Silicon Valley investors now going very global. You know, uh, Almost all of the big funds have presence in Europe, and they actively source uh, opportunities. You know, um, Sequoia has a program called Sequoia Search, which is focused predominantly on India, where they're looking for startups that are that are taking much less money, but are, 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 you know, starting and growing with the aim of them becoming global companies. And, you know, so the investment side, the money side has moved. But what's interesting is that the startup side, and I'm not sure which is, you know, is the kind of the chicken, the egg question here. But the startup side has also moved, which means that we are now building both small and medium-sized successful startups and even unicorns in many other places of the world. And so did one, did the money lead to the startups or the startup leads to the money? I don't know. But the fact of the matter is that there is no, not a singular focus on Silicon Valley. And that doesn't mean Silicon Valley is a bad place to be. It just means you have alternatives. Um, and I think I want to add that because I think what you, you Noodle does as a company and a platform very much is tied to that globalization. And and sort of democratization of access to technology uh, that that has happened over this time, and and so we are all about eliminating biases. You know, how do we make people run selection processes that doesn't just pick the the, the usual suspects that normally would get the money anyway? That's really fascinating. We're talking about gender diversity. We're talking about all sorts of other uh, you know divisions in society where where, you know, the venture capital environment still is, is sort of a very, very sort of old white guy, uh, uh, you know, undertaking. And I think that's really cool. Did we invent that? Not at all. But at least we were building a project and a platform that fit that wave uh, really, really well. And I think that's also part of why it's become such a global, uh, you know, it's still a small company, but it's a very global platform. And, and I think we have a lot of impact today that we hadn't imagined 10 years ago.
0: Awesome. And and just just to kind of be crystal clear on it. Right. Like who what kinds of companies or organizations are your customers? You've mentioned the World Bank. You mentioned Intel Foundation. You mentioned governments. Right. Is there is there a certain kind of company that is kind of doesn't fit the Unoodle customer category or or how wide is it?
1: Honestly, Geet, it it has driven us crazy the past five years that we haven't been able to define it and say, this type of organization is the client. Had we just been able to focus on, let's say, just governments or just big companies, you know, life would have been a lot easier. But the reality is that almost every type of organization these days is looking at the startup world and they do want to interact with startups and, and most of them are not very good. So, so, you know, there, there is, there's just been demand for what we do and what the platform does from a lot of different uh, places. And we have decided instead of focus on the customer type or the organization type, we're focusing on the product and the delivery. Saying, I don't really care who you are, but if you need startup selection that eliminates biases and runs efficiently and, and safely uh, globally, we are your platform to come to. so, so it's all over the place,
0: so maybe, uh, maybe, maybe, maybe an idea would be sort of unexpected customers. like who you, I mean, who like <laughs> in a way, just just because I think it's super important point because I was quite surprised when we uh, we've met at a bunch of conferences. We've also met in Per, like, you know, I hung out as friends. So you've mentioned to me some customers, and I was like, what? They're looking at startups, corporates, and these big companies. and and I think to me, You've actually changed my very very biased opinion on corporates and governments uh, almost single-handedly, <laughs> right because I think I think being a pure startup guy since I was a teenager, right I, I sort of see governments and 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 big corporates as you know these sort of things that slow you down you know, that are sort of in the way of startup progress almost. but that seems to be not the case at least at least the people that come to you, right So are there certain, standout examples where you're like, oh, you would not expect this kind of company to be interested in startups, but they have, and you've helped them. Can you talk about some of those?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think it, it's the, the, the first thing to say is that it's definitely not, you know, just private companies. Uh, there's a lot of different types of organizations that are somewhat puzzling. Why, why are you looking at startups? I think, you know, private companies, it's probably not very surprising to most people that organizations like Google, Amazon, Cisco, Intel, we've worked with all of them, uh, are looking at startups, right? It's like, well, obviously, they're big tech companies, so they buy startups, they sell products to startups, they probably hire people that used to be in startups. There's all sorts of interaction points. But what's probably less obvious is that smaller industrial companies, traditional companies who might be 100 plus years old are looking at the startup world because they typically only have, let's say, one you know, cash cow product. One product they've been selling for 50 years that they're just the world's best at. Uh, and uh, and they're really struggling with figuring out how do, how do the next 10, 20 years look for us? So, you know, startups don't have all the answers, but, but it's just they can't afford not to be interested in the startup world. And that is a new thing. You know, it's not new that Google and Cisco work with startups, but it is new that a traditional 100-year-old industrial company is looking at startups and working with startups. And I'm astonished sometimes of these companies that explain like what they do and what they focus on, uh, you know, what, you know, that, that, that that's even a billion dollar market. Right. Um, I remember talking to one that said, well, we are specialized in the plastic film that goes on TVs when they're sold, you know, the film that you tear off, uh, the packaging film, right? That specific, product, this company has just built a massive business out of. And I'm just like, it's, it's fascinating, you know, uh, uh, how specialized Sony companies are. And of course, in the name of focus, that's really good. But in the name of disruption, that also means that you are really only betting on one horse. And that means that if you are not aware of where disruption is coming from, uh, you are very vulnerable to, to new developments in the market. Uh, So, so that's, that's sort of one aspect of, of a lot of surprising stuff in that category. But I think also other organizations like nonprofits that you feel like, well, why why would nonprofits, uh, you know, be interested? Uh, we work with, you know, um, a, a water charity called Imagine H2O, which is about, you know, reinventing how water is both sourced and distributed and, and given access to around the world. And uh, as many other uh, nonprofits, they're saying, well, we need somehow to work with startups because they are nimble, they can test things out. They're often present in a lot of markets where, where you know, business might be hard to do. So the, the, the idea of doing that is, is uh, I think, in the nonprofit space is definitely gaining ground. Um, who knew, for instance, that UNICEF runs a global c- cryptocurrency innovation fund? So uh, essentially, I think I think that's (laughs) worth that's that's worth
0: that's worth repeating. So UNICEF runs a what?
1: Exactly. Yes, let's stop there for a moment. In New York City, UNICEF runs an innovation group that has several different projects, one of which is a global cryptocurrency based innovation fund that invests with cryptocurrency, mostly Bitcoin and Ethereum, into startups in a variety of, of countries around the world that are making life better for children all around the planet. And the reason why they're using cryptocurrency is that that means that it's much easier for them to not only send funds across borders, but also track the, the appropriation of the funds, essentially make sure that they are being spent on, on what they need to be spent on. So one of the rules is that you can't just take your crypto and go to the Bitcoin ATM and take out cash. You know, you have, you have to buy services that, are, that can be paid for in crypto, which is obviously a challenge. But this allows this fund to operate innovation projects with startups and small companies in all sorts of countries with very little overhead. And, um, and I remember my first question to them. And this is a, I, I, you can go to just Google UNICEF innovation and you'll find this fund. I asked them, was like, how is this possible within the, the, the UN system, right? Like, how is that? Who has, who has you know, authorized the purchase of Bitcoin for this? And it turns out that all of the funds for this fund are privately sourced. So there are private donors that are paying for the funds, but UNICEF and the UN are managing it. So it's a really, really, I think, perfect example of how a large intergovernmental organization can tap into new technology and new innovation and work with private donors on on making the world better. Uh, It's it's sort of the best of of all worlds. They even track, you can watch like how many investments they've made and which currencies. It's, it's, It's really awesome.
0: And it's, it's like really, really annoying, Torsten, you're making me like, actually like the UN, which is kind of (laughs) weird. You know, it's, it's, it's these organizations that sort of I've considered for the longest time to be very slow and, you know, sort of blah, blah, political bullshit, that they're actually doing something interesting like this. And I mean... Whatever you want to say, there's a lot of people who talk about crypto, and I mean that's a whole, you know, rat's nest of issues and yeah. and and craziness. But the fact that an organization like the UN is doing this, and clearly they're not alone, because I'm they're they're good at many things. But I'm considering, I'm guessing they're not first movers, right? I'm sure there's other people. Maybe they are. Maybe they're surprising me a lot today, right? So, but anyway, I think what's interesting is that you, Noodle, and what the work you do, right? It seems like. The definition of a startup is a lot more nuanced now, right? Before it was a a couple of developers, right, who get together. Uh, you know, this typical sort of Paul Graham idea of go build something and, you know, kind of most of the developers don't know how to how to speak in a meeting properly. So they hire a business person, they hire a salesperson, and that still exists, right? And there are a lot of companies that do that and, and and San Francisco is full of them. And so is Berlin, so is India, so is Mumbai, Delhi, so is Mombasa, like this, those people exist all over the world and that's awesome. But clearly what has happened in the last 10 years plus, and you guys have been part of that wave or, you know, part of uh, enabling it to a certain extent along with other players in the market, is that startups are seen as agents of change now. And and that is almost even more empowering, right? I think a lot of people, um, I think in India, uh, I have a lot of understanding and knowledge of the context there, right? There, a friend of mine, uh, Shraddha Sharma, who hopefully I will try to convince, she's a very famous celebrity now, so she won't come on my show, but I'll try and convince her. She started a blog 10 years ago, and I remember uh, it was called yourstory.in, now YourStory.com. Nobody would talk to her, nobody. And now, 10, 12 years, 13 years since that started, she can sit down with the prime minister whenever she feels like. She has, you know, startup India is this massive thing. There's so much happening in a country like India, and it's the same, you know, across the world, and many countries are doing a much better job, but still, it's it's great that it's happening, and it's like, you know, the one, my my sort of um, spidey sense tells me, okay, part of this is political, of course, uh, but who cares? As long as more interesting entrepreneurs Uh, who would who would not have thought that launching a startup would be a path for them right can take that risk and i think it's awesome for me because when i was in university and i started my first company when i was was first startup when i was around 18 19 nobody else had a startup i had to leave the university i had to drop out because they didn't think they thought i was lying and partying and and you know, I showed them my PNL. I showed them that I was working. That's why I couldn't get the credits for a certain grade for a certain class. But they said we don't care. And that's that's 2008, nine. That's not that long ago. And the fact that you know, 360, everyone has an innovation center and everyone has a startup. You know, sort of uh, interest is really really cool. So I think that's uh, that's really really awesome. And so now, where are we today? What is what is Unoodle today? And then I want to talk about another company that you're it says lead investor in but we've talked about you've been part of the sort of long play we can get into that in a second but where is you noodle today and 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 kind of what what does its future look like uh, in the coming couple of years for you what are you seeing
1: yeah um so you today is very much a a a SaaS company a software company that provides this platform for all these different organizations and thereby you know is paying for itself so it doesn't need to go and take you know, money from anybody, and that's really useful to be standing on your own two feet because we do work with a lot of different sensitive organizations. So it's nice to not be in the pocket of anybody in this sense. Um, it it's I think is has when I when I talk about this product market fit and the niche sort of to be in the sourcing and selection of startups, uh, I like it because it's both a a you know moderately profitable business, but it's also generating a ton of impact. You know that it, it is every year, it's distributing, you know, 20, 30 million dollars of cash to thousands of founders. And, and I can vouch for the processes that are being used for that. You know, think about how incredible that is, that, that money is being given out in a way that is not tainted by the usual biases that we see uh, across the venture and startup world. Um, you know, for instance, you can look at, at in a given year, uh, the, the number of, of applicants going through your Noodle, uh, represents, you know, it's it's many thousands, but essentially, roughly 28% of of those applicants are female. So the the uh, you know the percentage is not 50 50, but it's much higher than than you know the percentage in the w- venture world of of women uh, founders.
0: I think it's 10 or 11 in venture.
1: Yeah. Yes. So what's interesting for me is that when you look at the ones that are actually winning these grants, the ones that are after being evaluated by external experts and arms length, you know, principles and all sorts of good stuff, the ones that come out of top, we also have almost exactly 28% women founders. So we are not observing any kind of gender bias on this platform. And yes, of course, there's plenty of gender bias in the rest of the system, but I think it's kind of cool that there is a pocket of it where I can say, yeah, I actually, this this works the way it should. You know, it's doing it's it's doing what it should. And the fact that we can do that, I don't need it to become a massively profitable business. But the fact we can do that and let it pay for itself and grow, uh, I think is is more than I could I could wish for. So, uh, yes, it's taken ten years, but it's definitely something that I and we are are really proud of, um, and and I think will 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 live for for many years to come. Hopefully, um, I, I think.
0: But that's but that's really awesome, and I think what's really interesting is that you know I, I wanted to talk about one more thing before we sort of get off the unilateral topic uh, but this is an important point to make right you have data to prove this this is not just a theory right like a lot of times you sort of see that people talk about oh we're gender neutral no gender bias here no you know all the other biases I'm I'm very politically incorrect so I, I don't get the I don't get the nomenclature right so whatever just you know build a great product. Nobody cares where you're from. Nobody cares what your color of your skin is or your gender is. Just build great product and solve great problems. Full stop, right? That's it. And I think it's really nice for change to sort of have a platform and you guys have been working hard at it. This didn't just happen by mistake, right? That you have kind of proved it with the data. Now, two questions on this. One, what are the kinds of, like, let's say there's somebody in some corporate uh, office listening to this what are the kinds of organizations and the kinds of programs that would make sense to sort of go to your noodle like uh, you've meant you've talked about it a lot so just give me some examples like is there i mean could could BMW be an example i mean just like what kinds of companies and what kinds of projects should come to your noodle and what you noodle, what you shouldn't come to your noodle for
1: yeah no absolutely you know BMW uh is a good example your noodle does not do venture And equity selection. So essentially, if you're BMW, you run a venture fund, we probably can't help you much. You know, you you do what you need to do. But BMW happens to run something that's called the startup garage. And what that is, is a way that they work with startups in a non-venture capacity. So they actually say, instead of investing in your company, we are going to give you a contract. We're gonna buy this service or this product or this thing from you And we won't buy it all up front, but we're going to say, let's do the first, let's say, pilot of six months where you're going to be working with our engineers and trying to get this to prove that this works. And then after that, maybe we do another 12 months, another 24 months. So they're doing it as sort of a supplier vendor relationship almost. But they call it a venture client unit because they act as venture capitalists. They, They are willing to take risk. They are willing to work with you, even though you are not an established company. And I think it's such a cool mix of the best of the two worlds, essentially. Um, and in the process of both sourcing and, and selecting these companies, yes, they could actually uh, absolutely work with us. Uh, you know, they are, I know their team fairly well. They are not currently a client, but, uh, but yes, I think it's a great example. The minute you are willing to deviate from the traditional corporate venture capital, uh, you know, pipeline, which, which normally doesn't work very well, if you're willing to deviate, uh, that's a point where, where we can help you. Um, and and I think it also has ties to to that spin-out company that you, you mentioned um, Longplay. But you know, it, it's I think BMW, yes, that's a good example. But the funny thing is, like I don't think there's not a lot of organizations that should not or cannot work, work with us, right? Like if you we saw a lot of interest in the beginning of the pandemic of organizations that said initially, you know, I remember there was like a, an innovation request. Can can people help us? How do we make you know ventilators? uh out out of the you know manufacturing companies we have can we have a ventilator challenge right like it was very that's at the time how you know forward-looking governments and foundations were looking at how to solve this problem but later on it turned into okay we're now past the first couple of months we realized that this is actually now probably more of an economical crisis than it's a healthcare crisis because we're now past that we know how to deal with this now but how do we deal with the fact that so many small businesses are essentially put out of business? Um, you know, a lot of if you're if you're nice, you call it digital transformation. <laughs> you know that a lot of digital transformation has happened in the past 12 months uh, involuntarily to both small and, and, and large companies. And you know, the large companies will 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 figure it out. It was probably very needed for them. But if you are a small retail shop in like the streets of Bogota in, in, in Colombia, you are completely destroyed by the fact that no one can go and buy things from your shop in a prolonged period of time. So if you are the government, you are thinking about how can I restart the the SME sector? How can I help all these people that used to own shops to figure out, can I do something different in my shop or can I take my skills and, and go somewhere else with them? You know, now this whole sort of economic development and, 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 you know, personal development almost becomes front and center and all of it can have a startup component. Uh, so so good, so good an fact.
0: example. So an example could be. I mean, as you just, uh, you. I'll just go with what you said, right? Like the the municipality of a city, the local government can can come to Noodle and sort of create a challenge of sorts to say, hey, you know, our small businesses are in trouble. Uh, you know, are there startups out there that are coming up with interesting solutions to solve this problem? We will invest in you, fund you, help you, support you, whatever that looks like. Uh, Help us, for example, right? And that um, process it, can be run on Unoodle or.
1: That happened, and I think uh, a, a data point to share is we had an American foundation run a, um, uh, a a an innovation challenge for U.S. nonprofits, essentially saying it's COVID crisis time. You know, who of you can pitch us on on, on innovation, new projects that you're essentially helping uh, the U.S. economy deal with the the fallout from this crisis. And, and, you know, they started and we, we tried to give them some input on how to structure it and everything. And, they, and, you know, their expectations was we'll probably get about maybe 100, 150 applicants because it's nonprofits. Like, you, you can't just become innovative from one day to the other. They got multiple thousands nonprofits that pitched them on solutions, and they were completely overwhelmed by the interest and obviously did not have enough money to, to fund them all. But it just shows you that, that you know, crisis p- breed creativity and, and you know, willingness to change status quo in a way that I think is really humbling and something hopefully we are not going to lose as we uh, restart our economies. We, we hopefully won't go too much back to status quo.
0: On that note, does Unoodle share any of this data? Is there like a place where people can go and read some of this stuff or do you have a format where you uh, I remember uh, at tech festival in Copenhagen a couple of years back. you had a you did a partnership with a with a professor, right? where you talked about sort of these startup uh, data points. does does do you or you noodle does does is that public anywhere? Can people look at it or, or do, you, do you plan to do it uh, in the future?
1: Yeah, it, you know the challenge, of course, is that a lot of this data is is proprietary and confidential, not to us necessarily, but to the clients that run these projects on the on the platform. So, that does place some limitations. Uh, so, so at most, what we can do is sort of anonymized, uh, you know, studies, metadata studies. Uh, and, um, and that's what we did with the, with the economists from Ecole uh, Polytechnique that you were mentioning uh, and, 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 you know, are doing currently with uh, a, an economist from Yale. Uh, but I get a lot of, of requests for access to the data. And almost every time I have to say no, you know, it, it, I love data and research, but it's just the, the reality of, of it. If you really want a study that's solid and will pass peer review and be quoted, you know, you are going to need very good data. And that means data that you can check and back up and research and dive into. And so anonymous data, anonymous data set are only sort of useful for certain things. Uh, so. So no, there isn't like a, a unfortunately open data repository uh, that you can go to, but you can go to the Unoodle blog, blog.unoodle.com and see regular sort of releases and, and posts about these insights. Uh, so that's that's a good place to start. Uh, but I, I wish we were able to do more in terms of both uh, releasing um, you know insights, but actually also diving more into our data. We're just, we're so busy with all these different uh, you know, programs and and partners that make a lot of difference in themselves. That we often find ourselves sort of sidetracked uh, from from you know the ability to go and dive into the data. We'll
0: we'll definitely link uh, link the blog, and because I, I think I, I think st- startup founders, you know, w- no matter what age you are, no matter what you're doing, I think there's it's great to have more sources sources of inf- inspiration beyond the TechCrunch 50 million dollar raise article. Uh, you know, I think I think there's the, I, it also personally for me, because that's all I get to see <laughs> on startup news. Right. Uh, and I think it would be nice to kind of get some more uh, more interesting areas. Let's uh, switch over to long play. What is long play and how is it kind of uh, adjacently? What, what is it? Tell me what is it?
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, in my e- eagerness to focus the business, you know, it's always annoyed me that we, as as you said, have clients everywhere. Uh, and, uh, and all sorts of organizations. And I think it, it, um, it's, it's, it's possible, but, but uh, it's hard to build a business around that. So uh, we have a particular pocket of lots of interest, which is this corporate uh, innovation case. And I think the BMW example is actually really good because it's not the corporate venture side, it's everything else about how do you work with startups and new technologies in creative ways so so it's you can imagine when you sit on you know 300,000 startups in a global data set uh it, it's we're a very easy place for people to find and say hey can you help me with abc i have this problem so um instead of trying to build that out in-house we are essentially uh you know spinning out a um uh, a, a project called long play with that aim so um so i'm not uh, I, i'm i'm an investor and advisor into it uh, but i'm not you know, running it. And, um, and I love following it. It's it's such a cool, very emerging space. Um, and it's focused on uh, the the later stages of the corporate startup collaboration. Because honestly, you know, the early stages of finding cool startups, there's a lot of ways to do that. There's a lot of databases, there's a lot of people that will give you a report with some startups. Uh, and, and obviously, you know, as many startups, Yes, it's valuable, but it turns out it's not the main challenge, you know, and I've seen this over so many, uh, you know, projects where we would run a project, you know, for and with a big brand, we would find some amazing startups that were in the sort of top 10. And I would then call them back a year later and say, okay, guys, like, tell me what happened. I'm assuming you, like, built five new uh, projects and companies and, and, and very often nothing would have happened. You know, they would say, oh, yeah, I know, but like you know, my boss left, or the budget got changed, or or I changed companies, or there's like always excuses for why things have not happened inside the big company with these opportunities. So that much we have learned that, that it's sort of access to startups has now been largely commoditized, uh, and that's great. But it now means that the challenge has moved elsewhere. The challenge is how do you succeed with a startup opportunity? When I have outlined, okay, I'm interested in this space, here are a couple of startups that could potentially you know, help me, uh, you know, figure this out. How do I succeed with the internal challenges of setting up a pilot or a proof of concept of measuring my progress, of getting the buy in the rest of your organization to scale? We talk a lot about the difference between proof of concept and proof of value to be understood in the way that you can, in a big company, in a lab in six months, prove that this thing works technically. And and many people would call that a proof of concept. We tried a new material from this startup and it turns out it has the same properties and we can produce at the same price. However, for the rest of the organization to actually take that and say, okay, great, we're gonna build that into this line of business and scale it up in the billions of dollars is a massively difficult uh, undertaking. And a lot of it actually stems from how it was started, from how the startup was chosen, from how the expectations were set, from how the pilot was executed. So getting that right, is a huge challenge, and that's what Longplay is taking on. And it's not the whole answer, but it's a really important, I think, uh, first stab at this uh, at this problem.
0: And and I'd love to talk to someone who's kind of running uh, the day-to-day at Longplay to kind of dive a little deeper into it. But in essence, it's helping uh, corporates, predominantly right, uh, larger corporates, uh, figure out the right kind of startups to involve in their organization right it's the right kind of partnership is that what it is would you call yeah, it that? yeah
1: and i think when you use the word involve that's probably a pretty good one because sometimes it ends up being a commercial partnership like you just buy their services or products over time but it could also be that you license their technology or it could be that you even acquire them or acquire hire them as it's called when it's very early and just get a few people in the door and now they're part of the company uh or maybe it's a fourth type of collaboration but i think what it's typically not is it's typically not a venture investment you make, uh, and that's how the model is different. You're looking for more commercial uh, and sort of closer to the existing lines of business uh, collaboration and more buy-in inside the organization with this type of partnership.
0: And I can I can imagine right, and and it it would almost be better for many for many larger corporates because I think venture is such a. It's almost like you know trying to put a round peg in a square hole. Is that the right way around? Whatever. I maybe messed up that metaphor, but the point is that, right? Venture capital, in its essence, is a very different asset class to sort of building a large yeah. corporate company, and it can be done. People are doing it well, and you know there will be a lot of interesting innovations coming out of that, and there will be a lot of total total failures coming out of it, like real venture capital, right? Like that's kind of that's proven and recorded and talked about a lot. Now. Yeah the opportunity for a real corporate which you know has multiple lines of business uh multiple ways of managing people it would make sense to have multiple ways of interacting with you know startups so cool very cool i'll uh i'll ask you who i should have on to talk about long play but uh thanks for that that's good good to see what you're what that's also fun to see that you know it's pinned off into something totally new um and is that is that also sort of global or where is it based where's the hq or how how's the team set up
1: San Francisco based, but I would say kind of inherently global in the sense that it's very early, you know, yeah, yeah. we're we are working with the first couple of clients and, you know, I think still learning from what are the challenges in that path, uh, you know, the later stage startup collaboration. Uh, and, um, and I think sort of slowly building out the scalable pieces of it. Right now, it's not as much about scale as in, as in it's about making sure that the customers get a lot of value out of it. Um, and I think was it Paul Graham who said something about like if you make make a few people uh, get a lot of value and don't you don't have to make everything scalable in, from from day one. And I think that's Not- very much the case here. Uh, but it is something that should be very scalable inherently. Uh, we're just kind of you know taking our time to understand and and fully appreciate the, the challenges inside these companies before we decide on the scaling path.
0: No, completely makes sense. I think I've also started to sort of have a new admiration for or new new sort of focus of saying scaling is important, but it's also important to build a great product first for the right market. Uh, there's a there's a, I think it's something, I don't even know what it is, but it's called Mighty, Mighty App. It's some sort of something to do with Chrome, very technical, improving Chrome experience. They've been spending the last year with 10 customers and focusing on these 10 customers. In the tech world, that's insane, but that's what they focus to do. And I think the founder used to, was was the uh, was the co-founder of Mixpanel before this. So clearly it's going to be a great product. And they're going about it in a sort of very similar un- mindset of sort of slow focus. You know, Let's build something for a couple of people and then take it from there. Um, we've talked about tech for almost an hour. Uh, I want to switch gears a little bit into music because you're into music a lot and and talk to me about right. that because and my wife and you've jammed together when when uh, she was in san francisco and you know visiting so uh, we'll have to make that happen some point again uh, but but talk to me about your interest in music and how did that come about and, and you know just just talk to me about music
1: yeah um you know music and business is, is a really interesting topic that has also changed a lot i got interested in music from like i was a kid uh you know for some reason my parents don't play any instruments or are in any way sort of musically talented to my knowledge um but they they had somehow had the idea that if their kids started playing some sort of instrument that would be good for them. So uh I think they made my older brother uh play piano um and uh, I got uh I no hang on my older brother got the flute and I got the piano. And I was like wait I wanted to play
0: the flute but I ended up playing the trombone so anyway that's yeah, a different no, conversation. At
1: the time I was like no I'm so happy I got the piano and we had like my old uh, uh, you know grandmother's old piano at home uh, it was like you know uh, just like an intriguing thing to have in a home when no one knew to play it so as a kid maybe 6 years old uh, you know I started started that and took lessons in some local you know music school and I, I was not really great at it uh, but but I think I learned a lot of the basics back then, and I, I, I think I grew out of it after a few um, a few uh, years. But then um, in my in my elementary school, uh, there was uh, you know the parents had the again the parents somehow was you know instigating this. They had the idea of why don't we create a little band with these little kids? Like this is really cute. Like they had there was one one guy that had learned to play the bass, and then I had learned to play the piano, and so the parents got together and somehow convinced us that we should play, make a band together. And, um, and we started you know, rehearsing for this, and it was actually really fun. Like, it was like, oh, finally, it's not fun to play piano by yourself, but it was really fun to play with other people. And bear in mind, like, we are ten at this point. Um, and it turned out that in that band, you know, the lead sort of... We didn't have a vocalist, but we had a, a, a guy, a friend of mine, played the violin. And um, you might say, what, the, the lead in the band is a violin, how does that work? This guy has gone on to win two Grammys since then. Whoa. So the guy I went to elementary school with was just really, really talented and pursued the, the, the sort of musical track. His name is Mads Tolling. Uh, went to uh, Berkeley College of Music uh, in Boston, full scholarship, played with some like Absolutely, and violin.
0: It's always Um, been violin, or
1: it's always been violin, and and, and, you know string instruments. Insanely talented. Lives lives in in Silicon Valley, uh, sort of Bay Area today. Uh, And um, what's his
0: name? Sorry, could you say his name again?
1: M A D S -S, Matt Tolling T O L L I N G, Um, amazingly talented, and and obviously that made the rest of us look bad, but it also. It pushed us forward a little bit, like it was not that terrible. Like the, the experience of what came out of this little you know, kid's uh, band was not that terrible. I think he carried it a lot. Um, and, and I think that, that was probably much more of an instigator to get into music. And then I was in different sort of bands just for fun. I've never played professionally, but different bands in high school and, and college and have always really enjoyed it and eventually ended up mostly playing jazz because it has a lot of improvisation. Uh, and I'm not great at it, but I really enjoy it. Uh, and I should actually play much more. And um, so that's like the, 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 the short version of, of, of getting into something random that my parents were not into. And, um, and somehow, you know, I, 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 grew to really like, I listen to a lot of music, uh, but, but, but play as much as I can. And I think one of my sort of alternative paths to the, the startup, the tech startup founder path. I've always wondered whether A, either I should become a musician, whether I have the talent or not, you know, um, or B, whether I have done something in the realm of music and technology, just like I was thinking of biotechnology and computation. So I think music and technology is also so fascinating um, and, and has gone through a lot from like, you know, 20 years ago when uh, we as kids learned to use Napster and, you know, broke all the laws, I'm sure, by doing that. Uh, that upended the music industry and, like, realized, wow, like, we, we we have to figure out how how this whole, like, online file sharing and streaming thing works and fought it with lawyers in the beginning. And eventually, just like the movie industry, it has now found sort of a a, a balance with the streaming uh, platforms that we have today. Um, and I think it's just, it's so cool. There's, there's uh, you know, a lot is still probably yet to happen in this space. You know, as an example, you know, while we can do remote pretty much everything else, you know, webinars and, you know, we can do this podcast remotely, uh, so much stuff can happen remotely. Playing in a band is still virtually impossible remotely because of the latency in even the best, you know, connections. Uh, essentially if I play with a bunch of other musicians and you strike a note, it takes like half a second later before you hear it back. And so, so that feeling you have when you're in a band in the same room and you're able to sort of play and riff off each other is just, has still been near impossible. Uh, but what's happening is that 5G uh, it has, it has obviously higher speeds, but it has much lower latency. So it is totally possible that we're going to see a revolution of live music. And, and the idea of how musicians are trained, how people hang out with each other, how kids learn music, uh, um, uh, because of 5G, which is very unexpected, right? That that that's that. Why is that waiting for that? You know, we have good video and audio connections now. Um, so I think there's a lot more to come, and I think it's a really cool space. Uh, I I might someday <laughs> do something in that space.
0: Yeah, it's so- I mean, it sounds like you probably will to a certain extent because I think your passion for it clearly stands out. And I mean, I also love music. I, I played trombone for many years. I actually sold my my trombone to start my first company uh you know so there's there's something there as well i love jazz Sad, you have
1: to sell it though sorry (laughs) i'm sad you had to sell it yeah
0: me too me too but hey that's uh, sometimes you know one chapter (laughs) ends another (laughs) one begins so to speak um no but so i think to me this it goes it, it sort of goes really nicely into you know the startup world in general but specifically your interest in it sort of i would love to sort of riff a little bit on are there certain startups ideas areas that you're looking at because i, I know you don't uh, maybe you do invest a little bit but i saw on your linkedin you're kind of involved with by founders a little bit could you talk a little bit about outside of your you know you noodle focus are you how are you involved with the startup ecosystem at a global scale and yeah. you know all that
1: absolutely and i think you know none of these areas are going to be surprising if you just listen to the, 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 the last hour of conversations, I essentially have three different areas that I'm interested in. Um, and uh, one of them is sort of very obvious. It, it is the the sort of underrepresented founders in tech and in the startup world. Uh, since I have now experienced it for 10 years, both in the data set, but also personally from having a woman co-founder in a company in a space that was highly male dominated, you know, I, I think it's a. It's not a goal in itself uh, to to say you know we need you know everybody in the plan to start a company, but it is definitely a goal to level the playing field. And I like seeing that in your noodle, but I also definitely think that there are things that I can and should do and want to do outside of of that uh, company to essentially uh, you know either invest in projects that that promote that or somehow work with founders in that space. And I think it's no matter what else I do, it's probably hard to get around because. You know, one of the things that, that's so interesting when you um, find yourself in the role of being on the, on the sort of right side of history in that sense, whether we chose it or not, you know, that's what happened. We started a company, it was a, a female CEO. Uh, we built a, a platform that, that, you know, worked in this. We were on the right side of history here. And for that reason, we got a lot of inbound interest. You know, we have a, a you know, I think Unoodle is probably 60% female. Today, in terms of, of the team, uh, and um, and you know, we just got got really good candidates in that were not getting jobs in other companies, uh, and I think the same thing I see with investment opportunities and with new startups. Like there's a there's a, a, a definitely a proliferation of really cool companies uh, with underrepresented founders, not just the gender side of it, but also other sides. Um, so I care a lot about that, uh, and I think particularly in Denmark, where I live now, um, you know, we have we we sort of, in a very weird way, distinguish between Danes and immigrants. You know that that if you're in Silicon Valley in San Francisco, everybody's an immigrant, and no one really cares. Like you're you're yes, there is some racial tension in the U.S. that you also have in California, but the whole thing about like you not being from here is not a thing because everybody is not from there essentially. And in Denmark, there is this very sort of. Clear divide uh, between Danes and immigrants, uh, and, and I'm not sure how to define it. You know, we, we in Danish we call it n ethnicity har which means like you're ethnically from somewhere else. But even that is like, well, what if I was born here? I don't know. Point is, uh, it's a it's a very uh, uh, you know divided startup world, both in terms of gender and and uh, in terms of of uh, of ethnic origin, if that's a if that's the right word. So that I'm interested in. Um, second uh field is um, sorry before
0: we before we go to the second field like are you are you actively planning to do something here or is it is, is it sort of uh you know just it, just because a, just because people i hope people will reach out to you after this but i just want want to give them a bit more context so the right yeah you know kind of emails or tweets come well, to of you
1: of course it's it's honestly it's hard not to um because you know it is I just, I, 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 you don't have to open your eyes and ears very much to hear about interesting projects that, that have underrepresented founders uh, in, in, in Denmark, in the Nordics, in Europe, um, and in the US for that matter. So, so I, I think it's kind of hard not to, and, and I'm not really sure yet what the, how that will work. At the very least, I'm already uh, you know, informally advising a handful of, of underrepresented founders, um, and, uh, and I will definitely continue to do that. Uh, I I I I'm definitely planning on somehow starting a little bit more formally to place small investments uh, in in companies, and it's not it's still you know uh, it's a little the Danish sort of system is a little different, so I have to figure out exactly how it works here, but um, but that's definitely also the plan, uh, and and so to be able to uh, invest both time and and money into um to 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 companies, and I think. Again, it's not a goal. It's not if if you are, you know, immigrant founder or female founder, like that's not in itself a reason why, you know, I would work with you. But if you have something really cool, then I know that your access to normal capital is lower. And for that reason, I'm more interested in talking to you.
0: I think that is that's. I want to say that's almost that's not not almost that is a competitive advantage that yeah. you and, and,
1: it, and it has been for you noodle like I have seen it myself I've studied it I've seen the data I've seen the company it is a competitive advantage and I'm definitely planning to use that.
0: And I think to me it's it's like it's awesome like you know th- these these uh blind venture capitalists or whatever you want to call it. I there's another word starting with r I don't want to say it but you know these these other people sort of who you know have who wouldn't invest in these founders uh, despite being a great uh, building a great product building a great company it's awesome great you know more more vcs more firms more investors will pop up who will support them and if they don't they're going to leave money on the table so you know no problem uh, the, second, uh, area of yeah, so, uh, the second area of interest
1: yeah so the second area of interest i'm kind of for now uh, defining as government uh, government innovation.
0: So, yum yum. Let's talk about that.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, think about again, the US where I've lived the past 10 years, government is a very small part of the economy. Right. I, I forget what the exact number is, but let's just call it 10, 10-ish percent of the of the workforce and, and GDP. Um, and that means that, you know, the private sector can largely develop new things and the economy can benefit from it. And, you know, it's kind of very much market market economics here. Good and bad. In In Europe, and in the Nordics and in Denmark in particular, government is much, much bigger. You know, in Denmark, government is about half the workforce and about half the the, the GDP. So what you're seeing here, and I'm not I'm not a capitalist here, and you know, it, the saying that it's necessarily inherently worse. I'm just saying that because it's half of, of the economy and workforce. That means that if the new developments and technology and innovation is only making its way into the private sector and only generated by the private sector, we as a country and economy are massively losing out. So so I'm not here to claim that the government should be smaller. I'm here to claim that we have a problem if the government is that big and it doesn't work with startups and new uh, technology, new innovation. And so there's a variety of things that I think are, are necessary to happen. It's probably worth its own you know, no separate one-hour-long session, um, but but uh, it, a lot of it actually starts with um, procurement and purchasing. When when government makes decisions to spend money, it is near impossible for a startup or a small company to be considered. Uh, and so either government spends money on itself or it spends money on large companies. That's essentially it. And and so so that just diving into that problem would be really really useful. I think a, a second piece of it is that um, I I. I believe that the Nordic countries will need some sort of centralized CTO role or office. You know, that that we we need to be more informed in a less political way about the big infrastructure choices, the big decisions about where where does data live, where does our citizens' data belong? You know, what about data privacy issues? What about interoperability between different systems? What is it that we should own in-house, so to speak, versus what should be done externally? Today, the way it works is that, you know, one agency or ministry has a problem to solve and goes and puts out a bid, gets people to bid. And again, this is only the big established companies and gives a contract to build some sort of system with a certain spec. And a lot of attention, no one wants to make mistakes here. It's government. So a lot of attention is put on no one getting fired. You know, make sure that it's a safe choice, not necessarily that it's the right choice, but make sure that no one looks like an idiot after making this choice. And so you, you, you kind of have, uh, and we have plenty of examples in, in Denmark uh, about that problem, uh, where we have overspent both in time and money to get something that not only is not the best product, but is actually possibly making the situation worse because it does not interoperate with other pieces of government or with the world outside. Um, and I'm not here to name all of those, but but I think those are some of the pieces that where things start. And I think outside of that, there's a problem within uh, the allowing government agencies and employees to actually innovate themselves. you know It's create uh, you know environments where you're able to go outside of of the current rules. And that's really, really hard for government. Government is, is needs to follow rules much, much more than private sector. So, so what I've seen in other countries is that, that you can establish sort of sandboxes. That means that if you build up a, a project here, whether it's internal government or outside startup, up until a certain size and age of this project, there is a whole lot of laws that you, are, that you can willfully ignore. <laughs> Just think about it for a moment, right? How hard that would be to, for government to say, yes, we are okay with you breaking the law to its own employees. Like, it is near impossible. And, but nonetheless, this is what's necessary to generate. Is is
0: it. is there is there any public example that you know of or that you can talk about? Uh, just 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 to put some context.
1: Yeah, I know the government of Taiwan operates a sandbox uh, scheme, both for for government and private uh, projects. And I think you know a good example of where this stuff is is useful is if you think of the advent of uh, of Uber. You know, Uber is much hated in many economies, but but you can't ignore the fact that they have really pushed a very Sort of stubborn sector of urban transportation, uh, both obviously taxis, but also other types of urban transportation. And the way Uber started was, uh, you know, to operate, you know, uh, black cabs or limousines in uh, San Francisco. And it was never meant at that time publicly. The idea was not to run taxis. The idea was we have all these idle, you know, cars. How do we make sure we put them into use? It, it there's a, there's that's what startups do. Um, and, and they broke a lot of laws in the process. And, and I think as a government, San Francisco was not ready to handle that, right? And most other cities have not been able. If you are able to say, okay, within reason, you are okay to break these laws until you have a certain size or age. And at that point, now you have to adhere to all of them. That allows you to pilot these things uh, in a way that I think uh, society really, really benefits from. And uh, there are just so many areas of, of, um, of, of government-run society here that could benefit from
0: this. I, I couldn't agree more. And I would love to have you on again and someone else who you think represents the government side a little bit more. Uh, and we can find someone, I'm sure you know some people who, who would represent that side well, just to talk about it. And I think personally, I live in Denmark as well. I live in Copenhagen. I, I, this is super important to me. Because I've chosen to live here for many reasons, so I think it's it's uh, it's important that the society and and the government and you know in general we can be more innovative. The third and last area of uh, of yeah, uh, so interest for you.
1: The third and and I, I would well not last. Sorry, have,
0: last for this conversation.
1: I'm trying to it, but... <laughs> see. I'm helping uh, you. I'm helping
0: you focus towards <laughs> Yeah. So I
1: I also really have, and this might be my my sort of engineering background and me building Lego since I was a kid uh, and tinkering with stuff, I definitely have a passion for science. And, and you know, I often in Denmark, I see it called deep, uh, deep tech, I think is a term that's used a lot. So essentially, scientific projects that are coming out of the labs that are sort of really groundbreaking in its nature, but just commercially completely unpolished. I love that. And may need years in order to get to the point where they can, they can sort of uh, benefit society. I think it's really cool uh, because we do generate a lot, and and uh, and we are terrible at commercializing it, and um, and and unfortunately, what we're doing um, in in Denmark is that, then you know, government is putting pressure on the universities to you know uh, register more patents or spin out more companies, or they're sort of just like using the, the 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 sticks that they have to push people that don't want to to do something that you know they're really not good at, and and so. Unsurprisingly, it's not working very well. And um, if you go to the venture capital world, they're saying, oh, we would love to invest in you know, deep tech companies. We just need them to have gone through all of the expensive development of technology and, and you know, have the first three clients and have revenue and so forth. And then we're happy to help them scale. So there's a gap between something exciting comes out of the lab to the normal sort of investment world is, is ready to step in uh, and scale. I think that's a really cool space and and um, you know i i actually sometimes see that also mixed with some of the other two uh you know challenges uh or the other two areas where you have underrepresented founders working really cool tech projects that could have an impact on government and i'm like checking all the boxes here (laughs) like hey like no wonder that life is hard for you (laughs) right if that's what you're doing it's pretty uphill but it's also potentially really exciting um and and so it's it's definitely uh, an area where again you're probably to be the most effective. You're probably going to have to do a little bit of a uh, joint investment of time and money, um, and you're probably going to have to have very very low expectations in the beginning of anything coming out of it. Um, I'm for now I'm a mentor at um, at DTU Skylab, which is their sort of tinkering space. Oh, I would
0: love to talk to uh, someone from there. I reached out to their the, new uh, their new I don't know. I think he became uh, he, uh,
1: yeah the the new head center or something right Yeah. yeah. He, he's um he's a great guy michael uh Sorenson, and and I think that project had we only had that in my time at d t u oh my God, I would have like lived there uh but um but so so you know in some ways we're spoiling the students these days, but that just means you're going to see more stuff happen earlier like we're only you know it's not solving that in in between problem it's just creating more cool things earlier that needs more attention so i think Uh, that's a a third area that I'm really interested in and already am involved in, you know, informally advising and working with various people. So I definitely have a problem of of focus at the moment that that there's too many things, given the sort of crisis and lockdown, everybody's working on everything right now. And you could absolutely involve yourself in a lot of stuff if you had the time and and, uh, and interest. Yeah,
0: and that third area definitely for me personally over the last few months, right? We've been talking, uh, you know, with my also desire to look for something next to work on. Um, and I think definitely that area of, you know, sort of these these tough, tough problems around sort of health, biology, you know, uh, sustainability, sort of that require this blending of technology and, and science uh, and physics and all these interesting areas which take a long time to come out. But if you can bring in some, you know, startup experience and support that there's a lot of opportunity there indeed. Um, Torsten. You've been giving. You've been too kind with your time, so I really appreciate you sort of being on for this long. And uh, I want to wrap with, uh, you know, where do you? S- I mean, you've been very early. We've talked about, you know, with with what you've did with Unoodle uh, and and now recently with Longplay, and you know, and and everything you're personally involved in as well, right? You've, for whatever reason, intentional or not, right? You've been around trying to get people to think about startups and innovation in a new way uh, and supporting first of all it doesn't make sense to me to work with governments but clearly you've been doing successfully for a while Uh, and and I think all of these sort of putting these two sides together which normally wouldn't meet but want to meet right where do you see sort of very high level is kind of the future the next five ten years you know how do you see that playing out Um, and uh, we'll wrap with that
1: yeah uh, thank you for that easy last question yeah you know know,
0: i want to be i want to finish on an easy note for you so um
1: i don't know i i i think the 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 cool thing about startups is that it's sort of a universally agreed force for good you know you 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 really have to get them all the way up to like facebook size before people start saying oh no they're actually yeah once
0: people make a couple of billion each then they can start talking bad about it
1: Yeah. yeah Like 99 point something percent of startups are not Facebook, you know, they're not they don't get to that size or influence. So in that sort of more early stage world, I think it, you will be hard pressed in any political spectrum to find people that will say startups are, are not good. It's not good for the for the economy. And I think that's really motivating. And I, I often ask myself, like, why is it that they are seen as such a good uh, force for good? I think it's because they are building essentially building something out of nothing. You know, you have nothing today. You're trying to figure out, can we build something? And that means you are not spending, you know, if you were an investor and you're like taking money from here to go here, well, you're taking money out of something. So you're bad in that sense, right? If you're the government starting something new, maybe you tax people more, so you're bad in that sense. But startups are inherently building something out of nothing. And that means you have an opportunity without necessarily having a cost to society. And I think that's really cool. I think the, the, the second piece is that they are very, very adept and nimble and sort of resourceful in the sense that they can do what maybe government or big company would take you know, years to do and millions to do, they can do much faster and, and better and cheaper. And I think that's also really good for society that you have this ability to experiment and get stuff done quickly. You know, uh, very few startup uh, you know, founders pay themselves hand- handsomely because that's the nature of a startup. You're trying to prove that it works. And, and I think that's really good for uh, the rest of us, that you have people that are willing to take that personal risk, building something out of nothing, uh, trying to, you know, without spending tons of, of money and resources on it, trying to prove that there's some sort of way that society should get, should get better. And in that sense, I think we will continue to see a, a, a universal focus on the promotion of startups. I think sometimes it, it doesn't always work, you know, sometimes what government does is kind of ill-informed, but, but nonetheless, you know, it's a force for good and it will continue to be that, and it'll, in my opinion, with the advent of all these new tools, And the globalization of access to, you know, resources. I think we will see the impact of the startup world go up dramatically. Now we've seen the sort of uh, distribution of startups and 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 where they are seeded and where they start. But we are going to, in ten years' time, to see a massive impact from the startup world that is not measured in unicorns. I think that's really important. Uh, You know, it's a very sort of. Uh, basic level of understanding of the startup world to say, oh, we don't care about all the small ones. We only care about the ones that become unicorns. Because the fact of the matter is that so many more startups are becoming successful and are growing and are generating jobs and are generating tax payments and are generating exports uh, and, and you know changing lives without ever becoming more than a hundred people. You know, and so that that impact will be not only will it be bigger, will be better at seeing it as well. And I think we will get almost like a startup. A, a sector of the economy, if you will. Uh, I think we're going to need a, a, a startup minister in many uh, a, a countries instead of just a minister for economic affairs because it's going to be such an important uh, part of the economy. And I think that's probably the very short answer to I, where this yeah. is all going. Um, and I think it's good. I mean, we have so many things divide us in this world. And if we can all agree that a few people starting. a a company for scraps and trying to prove something is a good thing fantastic you know let's all rally that to happen and and try to see if we can make the most of it
0: it's always really really fun talking to you torsten you're one of the few guys uh gals people human beings that i speak to that make me kind of rethink my assumptions which is always good for me (laughs) so thanks for that uh if you don't become the CTO of the Nordics or 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 you know the the startup uh, messiah whatever you want to call it uh, you're right we'll we we'll, um, we're gonna make it happen uh, but uh, thanks so much Torsten for your time uh, and I will link everything you give me to link uh, for people to reach out to you below in the show notes and uh, let's do this in person soon uh, you know with the once COVID is a little bit more easy in Copenhagen so let's see
1: yeah absolutely no thank you so much for having me and and uh you know for for giving me it's it's not that often you get that much time to you know just ramble about stuff uh interviews are usually a lot shorter and and sometimes it's good to dive into yeah that's
0: that's the point of my show you can go on bloomberg and talk for five minutes you can come on my show and talk for an hour and a half so (laughs) that's the point uh thanks Thorsten, and uh talk soon take care bye-bye